Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, she shoots, she scores. We look at the early successes of the Professional Women's Hockey League, or the PWHL, including a lot of parity and competition on the ice, record-setting crowds in the stands. So what's working, what still needs working on, and how to build on this early momentum. PWHL play-by-play announcer Danielle Potticelli is with me to chat about that. We look back on the remarkable career of Toronto-born movie director and producer Norman Jewison. He passed away over the weekend at the age of 97. He leaves behind a very rich legacy, 24 films, which garnered 48 Oscar nominations from 1967 to The Heat of the Night, to The Thomas Crown Affair with Steve McQueen, Fiddler on the Roof, Moonstruck, Hurricane, and many, many more. Ira Wells, author of Norman Jewison, A Director's Life, joins me to look back on his life and legacy. But first, Ottawa announced it's curbing the number of international students coming to this country today, capping it at a number about 35% lower than current levels this year and next. It comes as the Liberal government is under fire for ongoing housing supply issues and issues around affordability as well, of course. But educational institutions have really come to rely on the money they get from international students to make ends meet. It's a fine balance for the federal government. So did they get it right? We find out. We'll start, too, with the whole idea of immigration, because there was a major immigration announcement today from the federal government. Uh, Canada is imposing a national cap on the intake of international students into this country. The Immigration Minister, Mark Miller, provided details today as the Liberal government held a cabinet retreat in Montreal. The cap is expected to result in approximately 365,000 approved study permits. That's a decrease of 35% from 2023. One a temporary two-year cap on new international student permits. It is the latest in a series of measures to improve program integrity and set international students up for the success in order to maintain uh, a sustainable level of temporary residence in Canada as well. Some of the numbers are quite incredible. There are apparently more than a million people in Canada right now on student visas. Uh, Miller says the cap will not apply to students at graduate level of studies, including master's and doctoral students. Uh, those people who are looking for study permit applications at the elementary and secondary school levels will also be exempt. But starting Monday, prospective students applying for a Canadian study permit will have to provide an attestation letter from the relevant province or territory. Ottawa will require each of Canada's provinces and territories to establish a process for issuing those letters. Even though we've put a lot of thought into this, these are still very pretty much blunt measures from the federal, federal government. We're, we're playing with, um, with taps that we're turning on and turning off and, and allocating between province. Uh, so it's, it, did we get it right? We'll see. Uh, but we need to work with provinces in the meantime to make sure that they are doing their jobs. Well, of course, if you think about it, not long ago, and we talked about Australia and this very issue last week on the show, uh, not that long ago, international students were being sort of, the, we were rolling out the red carpet for them. But of course, what's happened is that there have been a lot of challenges for, for the students as well. I mean, there's a housing shortage. Uh, they're going specifically to certain areas, mostly to the GTA and to the lower mainland. So rents, there are already high. Uh, they're finding it tough to live. There's also sort of a whole gray area here, unregulated foreign agents trying to sort of lure people here with promises of education that mightn't be exactly what they appear to be. And look, people looking at, uh, at studying here as a backdoor to working and earning permanent residence in Canada. Uh, you add that all up and it creates some issues. But is this the answer? Already premiers, don't forget, uh, education is a provincial jurisdiction and uh, foreign students 
drive a lot of the, I mean, part of the funding model of a lot of schools in a lot of places is foreign students. So for instance, Manitoba Premier Wab Canoe uh, said today he's seeking more details from Ottawa and says there could be consequences if the overall number of international students in his province drops. But if there's a reduction in the number of international students coming to our province, that is going to make tuition for Manitoba students uh, already in the system more expensive potentially. Raj Sharma is an immigration lawyer, author of Inadmissibility and Remedies. He joins me now. Raj, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, We were all, I think anybody who, especially in your shoes, was anticipating this was coming. We just didn't know what the details were. So your reaction just to the announcement and what it contains. Ben, I guess my initial reaction was, uh, I suppose, some degree of whiplash given the number of changes that have occurred in the immigration portfolio. Uh, I've been doing this for about 20 years Prior to that, I started my career as an immigration hearings officer. You know, this department, this area of law is characterized by rapid change. That still doesn't prepare you for the rapidity of change. And so we had massive change, massive focus on the international students. And you can almost see the eye of Sauron descend on the international students after a number of concerning incidents. So... I mean, we ran into, yeah, we ran into a problem here, right? I mean, I think everyone understood the need to bring in, I think everyone understood the rationale between bringing foreign students to Canada. It was good money for the colleges. Uh, The university system was kind of reliant on that extra money. Uh, It was a way of attracting smart young people to this country. Hopefully they would stay afterwards. Where did it get out of control then if it did? You're right. I mean, we've got this massive, let's call it near explosion in terms of the numbers of international students since the liberal government took power in about 2015. Mm -hmm. It didn't start off this way. It didn't start off as the international students being uh, milked for, you know, double, triple, quadruple tuition fees. There was this sort of confluence or convergence of issues. You had the provinces hold funding to their post-secondary institutions. And Given, of course, expenses, inflation, et cetera, et cetera, the post-secondary institutions then saw the ability to charge these international students double, triple fees as a way to cover that shortfall of funding. So all of a sudden, international students became... The funding model, essentially. In essence. And so you had international students years ago, perhaps, contribute $7 billion to the Canadian economy uh, you know, in primary, secondary, tertiary sort of, let's say, uh, outcomes. But you now have international students contributing $22 billion. That is larger than other sectors of our economy that have been around far longer than uh, this uh, sort of wave of international students that have been uh, that have come here over the past five, six years. And so with that brought in part, growing pains. Unlike the United States, unlike other countries, we do not have a cap on temporary residents. We go after permanent residents. We set a number, 350,000, 400,000, 500,000, 450,000. We have this model there. We do not have anything like that in terms of temporary residents. And so what you have then, of course, is you have this this new minister, all right, he's got some of my sympathy and, and he's thrown into the thick of things and he's got to master this massive file. But And you have Sean Fraser now at housing. You have liberal cabinet ministers, including former immigration ministers, expressing shock and dismay at liberal government immigration policy. Yeah. 
It makes it, it doesn't make much sense. You know, I was speaking. We did something on Australia last week because they had encountered the same issue with housing problems. A large number of foreign students coming. Some concerns over those some of those institutions, ghost schools, they were calling them. This idea that the system was being gamed a little bit. I don't think that's the major problem, but it's certainly one that people have an eye on. And part of what was pointed out there was that the pandemic caused a huge surge too, because there was sort of a stop in the number of students coming. All of a sudden, all those those who were here stayed, and, and then a whole new influx came in, and that led to the huge growth in the number of foreign students. Was that the same here? If you look at, and that's very astute, if you look contextually, if you look at our contemporaries, let's, let's look at the United Kingdom. In many ways, they're five, 10 years ahead of us in terms of these sort of concerns. There's also Australia and New Zealand that have followed our economic model in terms of permanent residency. So we're, we're close to our Commonwealth cousins down south there. The UK has done a, a number of steps to restrict or put a freeze or a chill on immigration. The UK few months ago, under the, their newest prime ministers, they've gone through prime ministers more than we've gone through immigration ministers. Indeed. But their prime minister, the son of immigrants, and... Rishi Sunak, right? Rishi Sunak, uh, Suella Braverman, a, home, a former home minister, also the daughter of immigrants and, and a, perhaps an immigrant herself. Anti-immigrant policy, the UK is offshoring refugee adjudication to Rwanda, where we accept refugees from. But they also limited open work permits for individuals studying, the spouses of international students studying in the UK, they they stopped that. I had no expectation that we would follow that. And that's exactly what we did. Today's announcement is no more open work permits for the spouses of international students, unless those international students here are at the master's or doctorate level class. So we went down the UK path, which is far more restrictive than we have ever been. In terms of Australia, yes, it looked at the international students, and so did we. International students, in my opinion, are perfect, let's say, stem cells, perfect potential future permanent residents. Uh, They've been here, they've paid double or triple tuition, they've worked here, they've paid taxes here, they've They've got to meet security and language proficiency levels. This is the ideal sort of nursery of future permanent residents to Canada. Along the way, however, we got tangled up in the weeds. We had integrity issues. We had hundreds of students. India is the number one source country for international students for many, many years now. We had integrity issues. We had hundreds of students that entered Canada using false, fraudulent uh, admission letters. We had international students accessing food banks, even though they're supposed to show sufficient funds for the duration of their studies here. And international students going on YouTube and saying, well, here's a way to get free food in Canada. You can see why that Sauron eye started to focus in on international students, because there's integrity issues. and, And of course, the proliferation like mushrooms of these DLIs, designated learning institutions, above massage parlors. These colleges at DLIs that you know came out of nowhere, they're running classes in defunct cinemas and theaters. Raj Sharma is an immigration lawyer. He's with us. We're talking about an announcement from the federal government today uh, to curb the number of international students coming to this country. There are more than a million here right now on uh, student visas. And the feeling is there's not enough housing. Uh, the support system isn't in place. It's not good for the students. 
It's not good for the country. So in comes the curb. Um, Raj, when you look at this, though, do you think they've got the balance right? Because, you know, clearly it's going to impact different provinces differently, Ontario specifically. And higher, you know, a lot of institutions depend on this money. So we know there are the bad actors. But when you look at that, at the bad actors, how prevalent is it? Is it really the problem we think it is? Ben, when you look at the messaging out of this government, bear in mind, 10 months ago, international students were heroes. And to the extent that we lifted the restriction of their hours, we said, no, 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 you can work as many hours as you want. Obviously, we don't know how much you're going to be able to study, but no problem. You can now work 40 hours or even more. And so there were heroes 10 months ago under Sean Fraser, now the housing minister. And now his tune has changed. Now there's zeros. Now, when you look at this sort of housing, they're being blamed for housing access and affordability. They're being blamed for an issue that has been with Canada for decades now. For sure. I don't know if they're being blamed as much as this is the easiest one to tackle. This is like an easiest one. This is the one you look at the wide scheme of things and think, okay, we can stop this fast. Uh, 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 I I wouldn't want to blame international students. They just want to come here and get ahead in life, right? You can't blame them. Yeah. Please tell me how international students are going to be buying houses. Um, given their temporary some, yes, some yes, do, but not many. Yeah, yes, yeah, indeed. Not, yes. not many. But in, and yes, maybe they'll impact the rental, but that rental market is going to be impacted in specific areas in our vast country. That'll be in the GTA, the Brampton area, or the lower mainland. Right. Again, I don't see international students driving up housing rental issues in Nunavut or Saskatchewan. But again, let's call it a canard. Let's call it a red herring. But I think you're right, which is, it's the easiest way to tamp down on temporary residents. And we don't have limits. And yes, this is something that we can address fairly quickly. Now, Canadians need to be prepared. And, and that's fine. Let's, you restrict international students. And this is exactly what's going to happen now. You restrict international students. And what's going to happen without additional provincial funding, you will have an increase to the tuition fees of domestic students. So, you know, my kids are... are uh, you know, uh, about to get into high school. So yeah, let's let's accept that trade-off, but let's identify that trade-off, which is fine. Restrict international students and drive up tuition fees unless provincial governments are okay with funding their institutions, which heretofore they do not seem to be okay with. Right. As long as they get the ba- I mean, even even Miller 10 months ago said this was surgery with a hammer, right? That's what, how he referred to it. But you do get the impression that it had to be fixed somehow. I just wasn't quite clear... Because Australia did something similar. They sort of upped the English language requirements. The deal was to make the incoming, the influx of foreign students fit what you need as a country, as opposed to simply offering them an education, seeing what happens, right? I mean, I think that's been part of the problem is it was kind of done, you felt, in a bit of a haphazard way for a long time. And now they're trying to reel it back in. Do you think this will actually, these caps will actually make a difference? And and, and do they get rid of the schools that, you know, the, as you were saying, you know, the ones, the strip mall schools that you've never heard of? I mean, there was a stat out that 20% of foreign students here weren't even studying, right? Which is, which is concerning, obviously. I'll disagree with that particular study by Statistics Canada, because right. it doesn't quite capture the nuances there. It's, it's not 20%. But yeah. Let's okay. put it this way. It's do an 80-20 analysis. We can't compare Evergreen College to Waterloo University. No. Evergreen College had something like 90% non-compliance. So the key here is to focus on the few bad apples, which, yeah, may indeed spoil it, the rest, but the bad actors are largely concentrated in Ontario, not in Alberta or 
Saskatchewan or Manitoba and BC. Right. And let's look at the numbers. Add up every province. Leave Quebec out of the equation. Add up every province, put it on one side, and put Ontario on the other side. Ontario has more international students than the rest of Canada minus Quebec. The bad actors are in the GTA, largely speaking. And there's, I'm sure there's a number in the lower mainland as well. Growing up, what, what's that saying? Uh, don't hate the player, hate the game. I mean, yeah. Well, this was it, definitely a game. I mean, I, do you think they got it right? Do you think do you think they've got it right here? Because I think that's the big question. Everyone understands. Okay, maybe a million plus is too many. Okay, so the you know the universities I depend think, on this money. Do you think they got it right today? I think they're the masters and doctorate students, which are legitimate students. They're coming here. They are studying, and they're studying in particular STEM, let's say fields. Yes, they now get three-year open work permits. Let's say you do a master's prior. It's a year, year and a half. You only get a year, year and a half post-grad work permit. Absolutely. The master's, doctorate students, let's improve the quality of the students, and let's support our quality institutions, UBC, Simon Fraser, U of A, U of C, et cetera, right. et cetera. Yes, it was getting ridiculous. You had, uh, you know, public colleges paying money to private colleges and theaters and strip malls to deliver courses. And then you grant that student a credential. And with that credential, that person can get an open work permit. That's done. That's not over. That's That's over. over. Yeah, Raj, well, yeah. thanks so much for your input on this and your insight. I, I guess we'll see, right? We'll see. But this seems like something that uh, that kind of got out of control under this very same government. And now they're trying to figure out how to put it all, stuff it all back into the bottle. And I'm not sure it's going to work. Raj, thank you so much. My pleasure. The Liberal cabinet, uh, the federal government, is wrapping up three days of meetings in Montreal tomorrow, looking to lay out some plans to build momentum in the polls as Parliament resumes in less than two weeks on Monday, January 29th. The party's looking to regroup after a pretty bruising 2023 that saw the Prime Minister and the party's popularity sink, while the opposition Conservatives mostly soared under new leadership uh, and Pierre Polyev. A part of the problem the Liberals are dealing with right now is this sense that the country's going in the wrong direction. Of course, when the econ- when people don't think the economy is doing well, regardless of what it's really doing, uh, that's a really tough hill to climb. Of course, affordability and housing continue to be the main battlegrounds for this government, the ones where the one where they've suffered the most under the constant criticism from the opposition of late. Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc, a long-standing minister and MP, had this to say on Sunday as the meetings began. We're going to continue to focus on issues that are important to Canadians. This cabinet retreat is focused on issues as important as housing, affordability and housing, accessibility uh, in terms of housing. Uh, There's a broader conversation around affordability. My colleagues may want to add something. Uh, We're going to spend some time tomorrow uh, talking about the importance of the Canada-United States relationship. It's a presidential election year in the United States. Uh, That's a very important relationship in terms of the economy of our country, in terms of the security of our country. Uh, So we're going to continue to do the work that Canadians expect us to do. Uh, We haven't taken taken four months off. We've been very much uh, on the job and we'll continue... Four months. I don't think it's been four months since Parliament last sat. But anyway, Tyler Meredith is founding partner at Meredith Boston Cool Policy Advisors. He's a former economic advisor to the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, rather. And he joins me now. Tyler, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It was interesting to watch what would happen today because, of course, I've covered cabinet retreats in the past. And the worst thing that can happen is that nothing happens, right? So they all get together and then yeah. nothing comes out of it. They were pretty aggressive with the announcements today, uh, especially Mark Miller, I guess, on a, on a file that's uh, front and center for the government right now. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And and not to mention last night, even uh, just before the uh, cabinet retreat began with the announcement that there was going to be a summit on auto theft. Um, right. I think this is a recognition that the government felt in the last number of months, especially since the shuffle this past summer, that they'd been pulled in a lot of different directions and they didn't have a coherent policy agenda that could explain what they were trying to do. And so going into this retreat, really to set a tone for this next parliamentary session, they wanted to kind of say, we're in charge of the agenda. They don't want to let Mr. Polyev define the specific policy issues. And to be honest, that's the minimum of what they have to do, I think, going into the next uh, number of months, because uh, they are starting from farther back. And I think part of it is because Canadians don't have a sense of what the agenda is. Yeah, I got, that's the sense that I got. And, you know, this happened under the Harper government. I was covering the Harper. Well, actually, I was already away at that point. But I remember covering the Harper government abroad near the end of their term and, you know, things that happened in Ukraine and so on. And they sort of started to lose touch with what it was that voters wanted. It's not unusual for governments that have been in power right. for nearly a decade to start to kind of lose focus. And I feel that's what's happened here. With the, You don't really know why would you want to put them back in power for another four years. They're going to have to answer that question before we go vote. Absolutely. And there's no question that any government, once it gets to kind of that seven or eight year in power, tends to tends to kind of face this barrier. And largely it's about running against yourself. Right. Um, Because you you can define your opponent in positive and negative terms. But at the end of the day, by the time you've reached the eighth year or the ninth year or potentially the tenth year, um, you're really running against yourself and whether you can effectively reinvent yourself for the new reality that you face. And this is why, um, you know, governments, as they get closer to elections, need to actually kind of separate out the function of the of the party that's actually trying to invent what its policy agenda is going to be the next election versus actually governing. Because if you spend all your time governing, you're not going to be ready for the next election. And I think the challenge going into this next kind of uh, 18 months that we potentially have before whenever the next election is, um, is to really try to define what what the policy agenda is that we that the prime minister, assuming he is the leader of the party going into the next election, would like to would like to lead the party under, um, because there's a lot that's potentially going to change over the next year and a half. We may have the U.S. presidency of Donald Trump, um, and the return of, of of potential tensions in the Canada-U.S. relationship. Uh, interest rates may come down and normalize how people feel about. Um, uh, the high cost of living, and just events, right, and and normal crises that pop up at any ordinary uh, period of time. So this is a really important time for the government to try to center itself to define what are the issues it wants to talk about. Yeah, and and you point out an interesting, make an interesting point because what what the conservatives start to do is is sort of try to shy away. I think everyone understands that inflation mightn't be what it is today in a year and a half time that perhaps mm-hmm. interest rates will yeah. fall between now and you know November of twenty twenty five of twenty twenty five. But so so the, the new narrative is sort of this government is incompetent. Look at look at what happened to the immigration file. Look what happened to the climate file. Right. So you get the impression that that in some senses. Um, this government's going to have to try and defend its own record, and 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 they're having, you know, there's always it's always easy to pick holes in, in a record that's eight years long, but but there are some key issues, immigration and climate particularly, where I don't necessarily think another government might have done any better, but they certainly have. Yeah. They're having trouble defending, having to U-turn a bit on these, or at least defend uh, some shortcomings on the climate file. Of it. So I would just say governments always. Uh, are adjusting uh, based on changing circumstances. That's not new. In fact, we've seen in, in Ontario how Doug Ford has actually kind of made a virtue out of being able to shift in a certain direction. Right? He to does. Yeah, he turns a lot, uh, yes. 
Yeah, absolutely. And he gets a lot of credit for it. Um, and so I don't know that people will necessarily punish the government for making an adjustment that on balance people would kind of say is probably reasonable. I think what, what's interesting is if you look across the Western world, every incumbent government more or less is facing the same challenges. And it's largely because of the macroeconomic situation. If you look at what's happened with the popularity of this government federally, yes, it's been in power obviously for eight years. But at the end of the day, it really started to to turn negative on the prime minister, particularly in the last six months, as we went through kind of the, the consolidation of the fiscal tight, of the financial tightening cycle after interest rates were raised starting in 2022. And so those interest rates will, may come down this year. But the question is, will will things actually bounce back? And I'm I'm not necessarily sure that that will happen, because I'll, I'll tell you, we just did a poll. And yeah. uh, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, six percent of Canadians say that they think Canada is on the wrong track. At the time of the last election, that number was about 43-44%. So it's come down by about 40% since the last election. There's no way that the Prime Minister is going to be in a competitive situation going into the next election if that number doesn't change. So the, the policy objective has to be how do we ensure that Canadians actually feel better about where the country is headed on a, on a bunch of different issues. And the thing that people seem to be most concerned about, apart from housing, which we hear a lot about, is actually about the cost of food and fuel. Yeah, I, I was listening to this fascinating Atlantic, I read this fascinating Atlantic piece last week, because of course the American economy is kind of humming along, but a, a lot of Americans think the economy is down the drain. And they were trying to yeah. figure out why that could be, because you know interest rates have happened before and so on. And the one factor they actually brought in was food prices. We're, we don't spend yeah. that much money collectively on food every year compared to housing and other things, but we're so sensitive to the price of it. And if food prices yeah. don't come down, people may still be grumpy in 18 months. Well, and that's that's the challenge, right? And inflation is just the rate of change, right? And so inflation can come down to 2%, um, but it still means that prices remain high or are going to continue to be growing at a slower rate from a higher level. And so if you're if you're ticked off about the price that you're paying for, you know, for bread or for vegetables or for meat, um, you know, and you continue to see those high prices, uh, that frustration is going to set in for a longer period of time. And what's interesting about food prices is we all pay those things, right? Yes, some of us are more sensitive to what's happening with our mortgages right now because of uh, potentially the renewal of, the, of, of, of a five-year mortgage uh, as we've gone through a higher interest rate cycle. But only about 30% of Canadians actually have a mortgage at a given point in time. Everybody pays for, the, for a high cost of food. Everybody pays potentially for fuel. So, so when, these, when these household budget items actually become much more expensive, um, it can have a really metastasizing effect on politics. Yeah. What's interesting is how powerless governments in general are to change those things, right? So you can come out and talk about all sorts of policy issues that you... I mean, we've seen it with this current government trying to bring down the price of groceries and, and just how how complex that, that whole issue is and how hard it is to actually come through with... with, with prom, how hard it is to actually come through with anything that's going to make a difference. It is, although to be honest, there are a few things, especially on the regulatory side that the government could do. And I think they're starting to move in the direction of trying to do those things. But what's interesting is that, again, going back to the results that we you know, pulled out of the recent poll that we did, um, the government spent a lot of time in the last six months trying to tackle housing. Now, admittedly, that was because they felt that they were they were behind the curve. And there's no question that a lot of Canadians are obviously concerned about the affordability of housing. But what's interesting is that if more people are saying that they're, they are concerned about the price of food and the price of fuel by a factor of almost 20 points in our poll, um, I would, I would I, you know, I, I look at that and I say, well, so, so had, had we maybe missed 
the mark in terms of spending so much time in the last six months on housing and not trying to focus the government's agenda more on some of those other things that are higher on people's priority list. Obviously, it's a balancing act in terms of governing, but I think if I had one message for folks at the cabinet retreat, it would be you actually have to focus on the price of, on the price of food. And I didn't hear that in Dominic LeBlanc's comments there that you played. Tyler Meredith is with us this half hour, founding partner of Meredith Boston Cool Policy Advisors. We're talking about the Liberal Cabinet retreat taking place yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And then the Prime Minister is off to meet with the Liberal Caucus later in the week. All of this ahead of the winter session, which begins two weeks from today on Monday the 29th. And just uh, some of what the Liberals are trying to do uh, to turn the corner this year after what is what was a pretty bruising uh, 2023. Uh, Tyler, I guess it's no no coincidence that uh, just about everyone you hear from is talking about the U.S. about U.S. politics these days in, in government. It was interesting to hear Dominic LeBlanc mention it even because it's not as if, I mean, the, the election's not imminent, right? I mean, it's coming up. But uh, clearly this is an issue that uh, that the government thinks we should be paying attention to for reasons I could only imagine. Oh, absolutely. I mean, go just go back in time to 2016, right? I mean, uh, how many of us actually foresaw uh, as comical as it was that Donald Trump was running as a candidate, that he would actually win that election. And then imagine yourself on election night in Ottawa and you realize, my God, this man has actually won. What are we going to do? And so I think the the, the purpose of raising that issue now, uh, which frankly any government, whether you know it was it is this government or, or a different party that were in power facing the same circumstances, they'd probably be asking the same question, which is how do we prepare ourselves for what's likely going to be a bumpier ride in Canada-U.S. relations over the next while, and frankly, a, a challenge that every one of our allies is going to face because of the degree of uncertainty that the election potentially of Donald Trump uh, will introduce into just geopolitics in, on almost every level globally, right? And so Canada has to be prepared for that because we saw in the last uh, last time round um, that we that we like every other every other ally is a target, right? Whether it's our steel industry, our softwood lumber industry, whether it's our aluminum industry, and we can expect probably more of the same. Right. Although strategically and politically, one would imagine the attempt here is to try to draw parallels between Pierre Polyev's conservatives and uh, and whatever's happening with the Republican Party in the U.S. I wonder. It feels like a very for a few reasons. I remember back to 2015 when the Harper government had sort of their their deal was, you know, sort of shaping the liberal leader, whether it be Stefan Dio or Michael Ignati, if they tried to do it to Justin mm-hmm. Trudeau, shaping them before they got a chance to shape themselves and basically dismissing them as as incompetent, right? That was their and it stopped working when when Justin Trudeau came along. And I were I look at what's happening now with the Liberals and I think if you go back to the well again on social issues, I don't think it's going to work for the for another yet for yet again this time around. Perhaps not. Um, I, I think you're right that there is, you know, underlying it some um, strategic interest on the part of the government to want to talk about this issue, in part because um, the government actually still gets some decent credit for how it managed the um, the Trump, the first Trump presidency, uh, in terms of certainly the renewal of NAFTA, and that I think all Canadians would kind of regard that as a uh, as as Canada having succeeded in that moment in time. So there's there's obviously an advantage in terms of defining. Pierre Polyev, and and let's let's be honest, there is some material to work with, right? Like there are members of his caucus who, in the last uh, 2020 election, endorsed Donald Trump, right? So this is this is not without some precedent. Um, but I think part of the reason why the government also wants to talk about it is because it actually remains one of the achievements of the government that people still have some positive association with. 
Yeah, uh, which makes sense as well. Going back to your polling, because because you sort of looked at why people think Canada is broken. It was interesting what you what you discovered. You talked a lot about sort of pocketbook issues as being the main one. What I've noticed in a lot of the polls, and I don't think you touched on it uh, in your polling, but is this sort of alienation of younger voters and men to this yeah. government. Now, the, the men thing isn't new. There's always been a bit of a... He, uh, Justin Trudeau has always polled better with women than with mm-hmm. men. But it feels like when you lose younger voters and men, it feels like... Maybe for the last eight years, there is a portion of the population in this country that feels like it hasn't been spoken to or hasn't been governed properly. And I think we're starting to see that. We don't know what it'll look like in a vote, but we're starting to see that reflect at least in the opinion polls. I think that's I think that's right. I would say, though, that the the defection of young voters from the coalition of of um, the government um, isn't a new thing, um, largely since the 2019 election, actually. Um, the coalition that has kind of sustained Justin Trudeau in power has been a combination of uh, urban and suburban voters, um, racialized and visible minority Canadians, and women, particularly older women, um, who are particularly, um, you know, had, had very strong sentiments about the government's handling, positive handling of COVID in particular. And so um, young, young people were actually among the first group to kind of leave the coalition, not not in huge opposition, but just largely not to vote in the 2019 election. And I think what we're seeing now is not only have they moved over time to the conservative side, in part because of issues of affordability, but the potential turnout um, amongst young people, if it reaches levels that we saw in 2015, that would be the significant change in the next election. And what's interesting is that that coalition, if it comes to the conservatives, is a very untraditional um, coalition for conservatives. It's almost like a flip, actually, of what in the past has been kind of the, the, the conservative versus liberal um, um, competition over 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 who votes for whom. And that's important because if you think about those younger voters having moved to, to Mr. Polyev's side on affordability issues, they aren't necessarily aligned with him on a lot of other things, whether it's his views on climate change, whether it's the party's views on social issues, whether it's their views on, on fiscal policy. And so that can create a high degree of instability potentially in our politics as we look at, you know, the the changing economic outlook over the next year. So I, I, I would just caution people to think um, that, uh, that we might, you know, we might still see a fair bit of change between now and the next election. Well, uh, Tyler, as always, uh, we'll be watching to see what happens over the rest of the week. And of course, uh, when Parliament resumes on the 29th, everyone's getting, everyone's uh, sharpening their knives, so to speak. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. Appreciate it. One Canadian who really had a lot of success in the U.S. Uh, was Norman Jewison, one of Canada's great film directors of the 20th century, into the 21st as well, born in Toronto. His publicist said uh, today that he had died peacefully at his home over the weekend at the age of 97. Here's a clip from truly one of his best films. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Mr. Tibbs! Well, Mr. Wood, take Mr. Tibbs, take him down to the depot, and I mean boy like now. Have the FBI lab send you the report on this. Not that it'll make any difference. Yeah, Sidney Poitier in that movie, 1967's uh, The Heat of the Night. Jewison began his career as a stage actor at the age of just six, uh, but it was early work in directing variety shows at the CBC that helped open some doors to Hollywood. He worked at the, at the BBC in England for a little bit too. He went on to direct, I mean, just a slew of films that you'll recognize, including uh, In the Heat of the Night, as I just mentioned, Jesus Christ Superstar, Fiddler on the Roof, and so on. Norman Jewison was nominated for seven Academy Awards for directing Moonstruck. But love don't make things nice. 
It ruins everything. Fiddler on the Roof. If I were a rich man. The groundbreaking racial drama In the Heat of the Night and more. Though he never won a competitive Oscar, he did get an honorary Oscar in 1999. The Toronto-born filmmaker served in Canada's Navy during World War II. He directed Cher to a Best Actress Oscar for Moonstruck. You are guilty. I'm guilty. On social media, she thanked him for giving her one of the greatest experiences of her life. Norman Jewison was 97 years old. Jason Athenson, ABC News, Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, you could you can run out of time talking about all the cool movies he made. The Thomas Crown Affair with Steve McQueen. The original is a great film. Jesus Christ Superstar as well. 24 movies he directed. 46 Oscar nominations they received in total. And here's a clip that really sort of encapsulates the way he approached all of this. Uh, it was Nicolas Cage, who he directed in Moonstruck, that gave him that Honorary Academy Award, the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award at the Oscars in 1999, the 71st Academy Awards. Here's how what Jewison had to say in part of his acceptance speech. And my parting thought to all those young filmmakers is this. Just find some good stories. Never mind the gross, the top 10, bottom 10. What's the rating? What's the demographics? Just... You know something? The biggest grossing picture is not necessarily the best picture. I want to tell you something. So just tell stories that move us to laughter and tears and perhaps reveal a little truth about ourselves. And as for myself, I hope to see you again next year. Yeah, and he kept making movies after that as well. Ira Wells is the academic programs director of Victoria College at the University of Toronto. He's also author of Norman Jewison, A Director's Life. He joins me now. Ira, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. I love that last clip of him because in some senses, he's absolutely right. He loved, Norman Jewison loved to tell good stories, but he was also pretty success-oriented as well, come to think of it. Well, exactly. Um, there's that That's the tension, right, with Norman Jewison in that he um, he wanted to make Frankly, he wanted to make popcorn movies. He wanted people to to go to the the theater and to uh, to see his movies. You know, he has this. Um, he said something very snarky about um, Andy Warhol's movies once that that they bored him to tears or something like that. He was not really an art house director. He was a Hollywood filmmaker, but he wanted to make films that people went out and see. Which is interesting. You're right because the one thing that his films were never, as far as I remember, was pretentious. However. They were thoughtful and thought-provoking. You think of it in the heat of the night. I mean, that's or even Rollerball, for that matter. We'll talk about that later. But these were these were groundbreaking films when they were made. Yeah, that's right. You know, I've been thinking about this all day, and I think that you know he'll be remembered as a, a filmmaker. I think there's two there's two there's two things. One is that um, he made impactful movies. Like they just they stir you, right? These movies like In the Heat of the Night. Um, the, the film critic Pauline Kael once said that Fiddler on the Roof was the, the most powerful movie musical ever made. It just sort of floors you when you, it's a long movie and it floors you when you when you watch the whole thing. Um, the Hurricane, just a powerful experience. Um, so I think that they're they're impactful films. The other thing about Norman Jewison is that he just believed in the integrity of film itself. Like he really believed that going to a movie could change you in a little way. And um, in a way that, like, there was nothing cynical about that. Like, he didn't think about film as content. You know, he directed 24 movies and not one sequel. Like, who does that? 
Right. And when I thought back of the films of his that I that I saw, I mean, what's interesting about Norman Jewison is that I, I, being Canadian, I think we all kind of knew who he was. But I never thought of, you know, I think I remember seeing Agnes of God in the theaters. I remember seeing A Soldier Story, which is a fantastic movie with a very young Denzel Washington. Moonstruck was fantastic. Uh, Hurricane was great. You never thought of, maybe because he didn't make one kind of movie, you never thought of of, of his oeuvre, to use that that term. You never sort of recognize, maybe he was under-recognized for how many good movies he made. I think that's exactly right. Um, he, he, and he And as you say, uh, you make a good point that he just made so many different kinds of movies, right? So, you know, you mentioned um, Agnes of God, which was maybe as close to an art house film as he made. It was a, a film about a nun. And then he made Rollerball, right? You just couldn't get two more. Uh, you know, they were both cult favorites in their way, but there was very little overlap between the cults. Yeah, indeed. Tell me a bit about just how he how he made it, because one looks back at sort of the way his career unfolded. But all of a sudden, you know, from the time that he made the Russians are coming in, the Russians, the Russians are coming to the heat of the night, um, then into the 70s and 80s, he had a long run of great success. I mean, he was, as someone pointed out today, usually the money men come and make you stop making movies. They never showed up for Norman Jewison. <laughs> exactly. Although, well, there is a bit of a sad coda there, but but we'll leave. Yeah. Let me just start at the beginning. So, I mean, he was in the studio, the CBC studio on Jarvis Street in Toronto, for the first ever live TV broadcast in Canadian history. Um, it was an upside-down CBC logo, and, uh, and he was there for it. So he was there literally from the beginning, 1952. Um, he does his years in live TV. Um, he gets pulled into Hollywood right at the tail end of the uh, studio era. And that was an era where directors really didn't have an awful lot of control. Right? It was all around the stars. It was all around the producers. The director was kind of a hired gun who went in and, um, you know, took care of business. And he made films with Doris Day, romantic comedies with Rock Hudson. But he was there in the mid-60s when that was starting to change and the director was getting more power. And Jewison used his power to make films like Russians Are Coming, In the Heat of the Night, Thomas Crown Affair, um, and, and really made a name for himself as something of an auteur. And then... Things change in the 1970s, and Hollywood goes really kind of gritty. You get all those movies like Taxi Driver, Godfather, right. French Connection, and Jewison kind of sits that out. Like he he literally leaves Hollywood at that time. He goes to the UK, and he does a very different kind of movie. He does um, Jesus Christ Superstar, Fiddler on the Roof, and Rollerball. So he kind of you know skips over that period of, of Hollywood, and then he comes back and he reinvents himself again as something very different. He reinvents himself as a prestige director. That is like somebody who's directing um, uh, kind of mid-budget movies with movie stars, but they're made for adults, right? So movies like you mentioned um, A Soldier Story or, yeah. you know, even through to something like A Hurricane, which was not, you know, it was like a grown-up film. And Hollywood doesn't really make those films anymore. Oh my God. What? What? Take it easy. This time I was trying to do everything right. Well, just become excited. I thought if I stayed away from the city hall, I wouldn't have the bad luck I had again. You're making me feel guilty. I'm marrying your brother. All right, I'm guilty. I confess. The wedding's in a couple of weeks. You're invited, okay? How come you didn't be like him and be with your mother in Palermo? She don't like me. You don't get along with anybody, do you? What did you do? What did I do? You ruined my life. That's impossible. 
Cher and Nick Cage there in Moonstruck, which of course was uh, was nominated for a whole bunch of a slew of Oscars back in 1987. Norman Jewison is who we're talking about this half hour. The great Canadian film director who directed that movie has passed away at the age of 97. Ira Wells is with us. He is the author of Norman Jewison, a director's life. He's also academic programs director of Victoria College at the University of Toronto. Uh, Ira, he worked with some unbelievable actors over the years. I mean, from Steve McQueen to Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger, uh, James Caan, and then Jane Fonda. Uh, we heard those two there share who he kind of changed nick cage uh, denzel washington two actors he kind of uh, put sort of not i wouldn't want to say that he made them stars but he certainly helped propel their careers you looked into that a lot in your book what was his how was he able to bring out such good performances out of so much such a varied cast of actors yeah so many um uh sylvester sloan uh al pacino burt reynolds right. um i mean the list just goes like he really did work bruce willis um, he really did work with just about everyone. And I think he he was the director that, that the pattern is, is that he was the director that these stars would turn to when they wanted to play against type. So you have Al Pacino, who's starting to play too many gangsters, and he decides, um, you know what, I want to play a lawyer. Uh, and so he tur- he goes to Jewison for, um, uh, for Injustice for All, which is actually Justice a great movie. It is a great yeah, movie, it, yeah. Um, um, not not as widely known as it should be, or Sylvester Stallone, who does who does Rocky. He knows he's going to do Rocky too, and so he wants to like play against type, and so he does. He plays a union leader in this movie called Fist, which is actually you know, it's got kind of an embarrassing title, but it's actually a, a, also an interesting movie. Um, Goldie Hawn got sort of you know she was getting typecast as a sort of uh, ditz type character, and um, and so she goes to Jewison in a movie called in a romantic comedy called best friends, which is actually way better than people remember too. So, you know, all these movies are, are interesting in their way, but he never quite gives you exactly the, the, the star is never playing um, their cliche role when he's with them. And I think that's why they went to him and that's why they had such respect for him. Yeah. Cause sure. It had a bit of a, a bit of a launch with Silkwood and then with mask. But I mean, to me, Moonstruck was really the, the movie that kind of changed the way people people took her very seriously after after Moonstruck as not just a singer but also as an actor. Yeah, she um, a couple of funny things about Sharon Moonstruck. She didn't want to do that movie. Um, <laughs> she was was quite busy with other things, and you know she had a glance at the script and didn't really you know didn't really get that it was going to be a big deal. And I and I think that she was not um, alone in that. A number of studios passed on Moonstruck. Um, and even some of the actors involved uh, during the shooting, you know, you read the, what they were saying at the time for, through, from the archival sources that I've looked at, and nobody really got it. Like everyone sort of thought, you know, this is a bit of fluff or what. It was just a, it was just an assignment to get through and get on to the next thing. Um, and then all of a sudden, these Academy Award nominations start coming out, and Olympia Dukakis and, and Cher and John Patrick Shanley, the screenwriter, are all nominated. And and um, they go to Jewison, and he sort of says, "All right, here's here's what you do if you want to win the Oscar. You um, you can you do take this interview, talk to this journalist, do this thing, go to that dinner. He sort of maps it all out for them. Oh, wow! And and the fascinating thing, and then they win their Oscars. But the fascinating thing was is that he didn't do it for himself. And I think that that's so like um, indicative of his character that he he wasn't really all that interested in the spotlight for himself." Yeah, it's interesting that he never made the great Canadian movie. And that came up today, you know, the, the the great Canadian director who never made a great Canadian movie. And yet, at the same time, as your, you know, he gave back a lot to Canadian film, period. I mean, he was very generous with, with his success when it came to promoting a new generation of Canadian filmmakers. But he never did make that great Canadian film himself. 
Yeah, I think I think he was very ambivalent about that. Um, in the sense that I think it's it's just true that for most of his career, right, from like the the early '60s through certainly through the the '80s and '90s, into the '90s, there just wasn't the the crews in Canada. They the, the infrastructure wasn't there in the same way. I mean, he was quite open about this. It's why he started the CFC, the Canadian Film Centre, right? Because he, he wanted to train people to to um, help the Canadian film industry get a foothold. Um, and now there are, right? Now, now of course, Canada has some of the great, the best film crews in the world. But so, yeah, you're right. He didn't he didn't make that Canadian film. He he had a chance. Um, there was a movie called dance me outside in all right the yes. mid 80s that he produced mid to late yeah maybe late 80s he had a chance to direct that and uh it, that would have been a canadian film that, that he would have made it, it was it, and he turned it over to his um protege um to to direct the film um and bruce mcdonald great canadian film director of hardcore Lo- hardcore logo um and I, I think it's a great movie and bruce mcdonald's a great director but but at the he Norman Jewison um, didn't direct that so that he could go and direct in country um, a Vietnam movie starring Bruce Willis, and I think you know that at the end of the day he wanted the most eyeballs for his films. That's that's just part of who he was. Is he wanted to direct big stars and big Hollywood productions that were thoughtful and impactful, and and socially conscious films. But he you know he wanted the audience. Yeah. Any last thoughts? All right. I mean, it, it feels like he's done. It feels like he did so much, and maybe we don't we don't quite appreciate just how how talented he was. I mean, when you look back at that at that list of movies, you could watch any one of those. From I mean, I've watched the Thomas Crown Affair recently, the original one. You could watch just about. I don't know if I could watch Jesus Christ Superstar again. No offense, but I, I could watch just about every 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 other one of those movies again happily. Yeah, although even that that movie has its um, has has its its uh, its crowd like it its does. Defenders. It certainly does. Ad, yes, it Adam McGowan. Um, it's it's his favorite Norman Jewish movie. I guess my <laughs> last thought is just that you know I think he was to some degree uh, didn't didn't get his due because the films are so different, and so he didn't uh, he didn't create a sort of personal brand. Um, but he was following his passion and that's and that's not a weakness like that's a strength he was just he was a a restless soul who was all he never he never wanted to repeat himself always wanted to try something new and that's what will make um the viewer who goes back and rewatches those movies you know you'll be delighted they're they're all worth watching they all have have something that's worthwhile in them so um he leaves us with a great legacy yeah, roll, as I mentioned in my email to you earlier today, Rollerball is my, is my guilty pleasure, so I'll go watch that again. Ira, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Speaking of Canadians who've made it big in America, my next guest, or my next guest, the person we're going to talk about in this next half hour is indeed one of them. It all goes back to this story around Sports Illustrated, which you may have heard last week. Um the future of the magazine, it's probably one of North America's most storied magazine titles, period, right? Sports Illustrated is very much up in the air uh, now. Late last week, the union that represents staff, mostly the editorial staff, said that the publisher uh, are planning to lay off almost all or all of its of its publication, of the publication staff. The reason why, and it's a bit confusing, it's also fascinating, and there's a big company behind the scenes that was founded and owned by a Canadian that is at the center of this story. So the company called Arena Group publishes Sports Illustrated. In other words, they're responsible for releasing what we know as the content of what is now Sports Illustrated. But they don't own the name. 
They don't own the Sports Illustrated name. They license it from a company that does. New York-based Authentic Brands. They're called Authentic Brands. A company founded and still run by a Canadian named Jamie Salter. Uh, the problem arose when Arita appears to have missed a $3.75 million payment to Authentic Brands under their licensing agreement. Uh, CBS News spoke with Hollywood reporter, media writer Alexander Weprin over the weekend, and here's what he had to say about it. Yeah, so it's kind of an unusual situation. You know, as I said, the Sports Illustrated has been sold many times over the years. And it turns out that the last uh, publishing owner, Meredith Corporation, sold the brand to a company called Authentic Brands Group. And what they do is they license brand names of celebrities, of you know, recognizable clothing brands and media brands like Sports Illustrated. They license them for things like uh, resorts. There's a Sports Illustrated resort in Cancun uh, for uh, an online sports book. Uh, and they also license the Sports Illustrated name and logo for the magazine. And so the the publisher that publishes Sports Illustrated, the magazine, is actually just paying a licensing fee to this company, Authentic Brands Group, to publish a magazine and news outlet called Sports Illustrated. But the actual brand of Sports Illustrated is owned by this other company that just licenses it out to other parties. It's kind of an unusual, kind of complicated situation. And this other company was started and still run by a Canadian, Jamie Salter. So I was really interested in the company, more for the time being than the Sports Illustrated story itself. Uh, Authentic Brands Group owns uh, Aeropostal, Brooks Brothers, Forever 21, J.C. Petty, Lucky Brand, Nautica, Nine West, Reebok, Airwalk, Ted Baker, Barney's, Eddie Bauer, Fry, Juicy Couture, and many more, 50 in all. They own the licensing rights to Marilyn Monroe, Muhammad Ali, Elvis Presley. They have deals with Shaquille O'Neal, Greg Norman, Julia Serving, Dr. J., in 20, they were founded in 2010. Their 2021 revenue is $22.5 billion US. So this is a big deal with a Canadian head that we don't really talk about much. So I thought I'd ask Bruce Winder, who's a retail analyst, to join me to talk about it tonight. Bruce, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on the program. Tell me a bit about this authentic brands. I, I doubt most Canadians will ever heard, heard of the company or its very successful owner, but they'll be very familiar with some of the brands they own, including... People's, like, you know, Muhammad Ali, for instance. Yeah, it's quite an interesting little company. Well, it's not little. I shouldn't say little. It's quiet, in, you know, in that not a lot of people have really heard about itself. It's called um, Authentic Brands. But if you look at some of the, the brands they own, you know, Reebok, Forever 21, Juicy Couture, Lucky Brand, Nautica. You know, to your point, they also own the rights to Elvis Presley and his estate. And uh, Shaquille O'Neal and David Beckham are involved, too. And um, you know what they do? I was on their website. They do about $30 billion um, in terms of their brands. The brands they own do about $30 billion in global annual retail sales. They have 50 brands, over 50 brands. They're in 13,300 stores and in 150 countries. Um, But they're really smart about how they do it. You know, they're really about managing brands but maybe not managing all the rest that goes with it. Right. J.B. Salter is the owner. He's Canadian, by the way. We should point out this is a Canadian thing. And he started off yeah. small. I mean, you, you spoke about even bumping into him back in, you know, in, another, in another lifetime uh, that when he was doing sort of getting his whole thing off the ground. Uh, but this is a really interesting business model. How does it work? Well, you know what they do? They, they seem to be really good at buying brands that maybe have lost a step or brands where the owners are maybe not you know, doing that well financially. So they get a really good price for a brand that, you know, maybe have, a, maybe have a little bit of dust on it, but certainly has some great equity out there. And then through their partnerships, 
they they really rejuvenate the brand. So they have a lot of experts on staff who spent their whole life building brands, reinvigorating brands and growing brands. And really, that's what they do. They take assets that are undervalued, in this case, brands, and they find ways through retail partners or through licensing um, to just drive the brands to new levels. And they've been very successful at it. It's, it's remarkable because they seem to get rid of a lot of what weighs down the brands. I mean, I think Brooks Brothers is one of the ones they now own. There are many. They seem to be able to get rid of the kind of the things that that weigh on these brands, you know, sort of bricks and mortar uh, production and so on. And do, they just buy the name, then light and give it all to somebody, like license it to someone else and say, go ahead. You know, I'm sure they have a hand in who they license to, but uh, they basically just you know, they, they have the name and the name is valuable, right? I, I was, I was sure. shocked at how much they own. Yeah. And I mean, they're really smart because what they do is they pick the part of the value chain where they're really good at. So if you look at brands, right, there's some stuff that when you manage a brand, if you're a traditional manufacturer, to your point, you got things that really brings you down. Things like manufacturing, managing inventory, right? They don't get involved in as much of that. What they do is they manage the brand, they pick the partners, and they collect checks. They collect licensing checks or royalty checks. They run with a really low overhead. So they're lean and mean from an overhead standpoint. And they've really sort of taken the cream off the top here in terms of what these brands generate with not nearly as much risk. They push a lot of the risk of the brands onto their partners or onto the people who license the brands. When you look at um, at the success of it, I know Forever 21, they had to go into a partnership with Shine and so on. I guess it's not all of them have been super successful, but they do seem to have found a way to um, to pick up brands that still have some real residual value. And Sports Illustrated, uh, although we'll talk about what's happened with Sports mm. Illustrated because it yeah. sort of fits into their business model, uh, but but they, they seem to be able to to make money doing this. And it's interesting. So they simply license out the name to somebody else. So if you see a shirt with, you know, if you see a, a lucky brand, something or other on the shelves, it, it was licensed by them and made by somebody else, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, they have a few different business models in play, I think. some In some cases, they do more heavy lifting than others. But overall, that's the model, right? Is they're really, they're really managing intellectual property, which is the brands and designs. And that's exactly what they do in some cases is they find a great manufacturer who can make the product under their brand. They probably have strict quality control and design criteria. And then they pick the right retail partner to sell to. And again, they're able to sort of control the asset, take the cream off the top without really wading into all the heavy lifting, heavy you know, overhead stuff like owning factories or owning stores. They're kind of smarter than that. They, they pick the... Uh, the areas of the value chain where they can really make as much money as possible. We mentioned his name earlier. Tell me a bit about Jamie Salter because he's the he's the head of this and he's Canadian. I mean, he, you think of all those things. If you ask someone on the street, "Hey, who owns the the rights to the Elvis?" Basically, the branding around Elvis, not Graceland sure. and so on. But yeah. a lot of the branding, I think, there's also Marilyn Monroe. If I'm not mistaken, exactly. Yeah, Muhammad Marilyn Muhammad Ali for sure. Muhammad I think it was something Ali, to yeah. do with Bob Marley. I mean, if you said, "Oh, by the way, that's all," you know, there's a Canadian who's behind all of this. People would be shocked. I think. Yeah, I mean, Jamie Salter um, is, you know, he's not a high-profile guy. Um, I met him uh, once or twice in a different life when I was a buyer at Canadian Tire about 24 years ago. And But even then, you know, he had a reputation for doing great deals. He owned a company called Gen X, which was one of the first companies to promote the uh, scooters mm-hmm. and action sports. And uh, even then, though, he was a dealmaker. He was wheeling and dealing. He was buying and selling companies. And I think we all knew that he was going to be a force to be reckoned with. But you're right, he's not a household name, but quietly behind the scenes, 
him and his uh, partners, and they have a lot of private equity companies like BlackRock who've invested in his in his company too. They just quietly in stealth mode just accumulated, you know, a great stable of of very lucrative brands. Right, and so and and that leads me to the Sports Illustrated example, which if you think about it, although it's not clothing and you can't wear it, it is right. just a brand, right? I mean, in the in the grand scheme of things, Sports Illustrated is a brand. I know when Authentic Brands picked it up, they also used it to release other items that were Sports Illustrated, uh, sort of labeled, you know, bathing suits, whatever you could associate with Sports Illustrated. So, in other words, in this case, uh, they didn't license out the manufacturing of a shirt; they licensed out the production of a magazine, but the model is the same. It is. It's the same thing. You find someone who's willing to do the heavy lifting, the right company who wants to do all the work, so to speak, and you partner with them. And, you know, by, by lending them your brand under certain criteria, they can charge a lot more for their services. They can, um, you know, they have a higher credibility and you get a piece of the action. You know, you get maybe whatever it is, 10 or 20% of their revenue um, for letting them use your brand, which again, gives them that credibility and wherewithal to compete in that marketplace. Right. But clearly, as we found out with the Sports Illustrated model, when someone owns the brand, you need to pay them, right? Because in this case, it appears they weren't getting paid. So there goes the brand and there goes your venture, so to speak. Exactly. And that, that those are the rules of the game. When you're in the license business, um, if you're, uh, you're you know obtaining a license from someone and in that agreement, you got to pay your uh, quarterly fees for that brand. And there's minimums too. There's certain minimums in all these brands. You have to hit a certain minimum dollar threshold and revenue threshold uh, or else they can pull the brand and they will pull the brand if you're not you know, living up to your end of the deal. Bruce Winder is a retail analyst. He's with me this half hour talking about this whole crisis around Sports Illustrated. You may have read last week that the people producing Sports Illustrated magazine were going to have to lay off almost all their staff. The future of, of, the, of the brand, the future of the, of the publication, I should say, is very much in doubt. And then it came out that uh, if people didn't know this, that the company that was producing the content didn't own the name. Sports Illustrated had been bought by somebody else and licensed to this company to produce what we know as the content of the magazine, sports reporting, essentially. It turns out that the company that owns the brand is a Canadian company called Authentic Brands, started by a Canadian named Jamie Salter. And we've been, they own many, many brands out there that you may be familiar with. Reebok, Brooks Brothers, uh, Juicy Couture, Tree Torn, I think. There are many, many, Hunter. There are many, many, many brands that they own. That's their business. They buy up the brand, then license it, license it out um, to other manufacturers to continue making this stuff. So Bruce, when it comes to the future of Sports Illustrated, that leads to this very uh, profound question, I think, for authentic brands. What's the brand worth if there's no publication? Yeah, it's a great point. But I think the, the opportunity for them now is depending on what happened, you know, from a contract standpoint, they can go out and find another company that's willing to take on the brand and do the work for them. So there's nothing really stopping them probably from going out and finding another publisher who you know has certain content that they like and has a good management style they can get along with, and they just simply take it over. So in some cases, you know, the damage to the Sports Illustrated brand, you know, it could be minimal, right? They might be down for a few months or maybe a year, but there's nothing stopping that brand from getting back in the game with a different publisher. Yeah, it it strikes me that even through this um, through this crisis. That it was a reminder that even though it's not nearly as relevant as it once was, that Sports Illustrated is still, much like the rest of, of authentic brands is stable, uh, is still a well-recognized and, and respected brand to some extent. No, for sure. I mean, you know, especially folks who are of the boomer age or the Gen X age, we all remember Sports Illustrated, right? It's, it's, it was a, a staple. So a lot of these brands still have a, quite a bit of equity. They might not have as much equity with Gen Z customers, 
or maybe younger millennials, but Gen, Gen X and boomers, absolutely. And that's still a big marketplace out there in terms of, uh, you know, uh, information and, and uh, other products and publications. So definitely, you know, a lot of these sort of legacy brands still have a lot of runway. When you look at the flip side of this, because I was thinking about that, is that too, part of the reason we buy brands is because we've liked them in the past or we have faith in the product mm. that they've made traditionally. If the brand is no longer owned by the company that we, I mean, I know this is all very messy and behind the scenes, but mm. if we, if the brand that we're buying is no longer the brand that we think it is, is it still the same brand? That was my only question about, I mean, the Sports Illustrated thing is a perfect example. There is sure. no physical thing as Sports Illustrated anymore. It's farmed out to another company that then provides the content. And you're right, they could just as easily change the content provider and who would be the wiser, right? But it does cause Exactly. into question what it is that you're buying when you're buying a brand. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think to answer your question, you know what? It's all about the brand character and the brand behavior. And people kind of find things out from behind the scenes. And it all depends on how that steward of the brand acts. Like one of the things that, you know, was a bit of an issue with Sports Illustrated, more than a big issue, was the issue with AI yeah. and how they were using, you know, uh, AI to write articles. That, that, that may have been an issue where, you know, authentic brands said, hey, you know, you're, you're sort of damaging the brand by doing that. You know, that could have been an issue, too. Right. So it all depends on how you steward the brand, who's taking care of it, how they act. Definitely consumers don't see a lot of that behind the scenes. But, you know, if, if that provider, that steward does something really bad, then that may change the perception of how consumers value that brand. Right. I suppose that's the risk that authentic brands runs is that they own the name. So ultimately consumers will associate i mean it's their brand that loses value if there's a, if there's a crisis or a controversy yeah it's, it's a great point and that's one of the risks you have when you license out brands it's not unlike you know using a celebrity uh to endorse your product if a celebrity does something bad your brand looks bad right you know with with uh kanye or ye uh, as an example with adidas so you know when you think about that and but what's supposed to happen is they're supposed to be very very close guardrails and, uh, you know, checks and balances by the brand owner, in this case, Authentic, to make sure that the company licensing their brand uh, doesn't do anything bad. And normally, if they do something bad or perceive bad, they have the right to pull it immediately. So you kind of have to be really putting all of your partners on, on short leashes, so to speak, to make sure that you're really monitoring what they're doing and not doing, to make sure that you feel really good that your brand's represented well. I'm pretty sure those licensing deals are uh, have a lot of words in those contracts. It must be a lot oh. of disclaimers in those contracts. Um, yeah, definitely. But, but, I mean, ultimately, if Canadians had ever heard of this company, Authentic Brands, it is one of those big Canadian success stories that we may not have known much about. And here we are talking about it uh, within the, uh, the, you know, within in relation to Sports Illustrated, a big story that's shed some light on a pretty successful and big Canadian, well, company run by a Canadian, at least. Exactly. No, I mean, it's a, it's quite remarkable when you think about how big this company is. They're based in New York, you know, and they have a lot of folks uh, involved from Canada, whether they're still there or not. But yeah, it's just, it's really nice to see a Canadian be that successful on a worldwide stage. Yeah, especially one that we rarely ever talk about. I mean, I was looking, trying to find articles written in Canada about Jamie Salter and there were no, almost so none. There were almost none. Yeah, he just, he just, I don't think he keeps a high profile. I think he likes yeah. to sort of operate behind the scenes and, and make deals. Yeah. He gave an interview, a very interesting interview to the Washington Post on Friday, though, about this whole Sports Illustrated thing. But yeah, mm. Bruce, as always, thanks for your insight. I appreciate it. Yeah, anytime, Ben. Take care. Thanks. When you speak to Europeans within the European Union and explain to them how difficult it is as a Canadian to work in the U.S. and vice versa, they don't believe you. 
They always think, oh, well, your neighbors, you must be able to easily go work in the U.S. if you wanted to, right? I'm like, no, not at all. Not at all. You need to go through the same process that anyone else would. doesn't matter how close we are. I mean, clearly, you know, the ties are there. So lots of Canadians wind up working in the U.S. over time. But it's not easy. It's not an easy thing to do, right? I mean, there are many barriers in the way. So if all those barriers were gone, would you jump at the chance to go live in the United States? Let me know. one 877 399-9898 is the text line. I always find it interesting when government agencies release things and you don't and you want you struggle to understand, not struggle to understand, but you want to know why, right? Why now? Why would you release this now? And that's exactly what happened with this next story. Um, last week on Thursday, uh, the Competition Bureau of Canada announced or put out this sort of press release around false online reviews written by employees about their own company or competitors, saying that misleading or false online reviews written by employees about their own company or competitors could result in penalties they warrant. Um, The federal agency is urging employees to be transparent about whom they work for when they post these reviews online. Um, And they said businesses should watch out for all types of reviews, including testimonials testimonials on social media posted by their employees that don't properly identify themselves. In other words, this is an issue of concern. I don't know how what you're like, but if you're sort of quickly looking for someone to come do something for you, um, for instance, a while back, we had a plumbing issue at home and I needed to find a plumber. So you go through it really quickly, right? And what do you do? You read the reviews. You don't read them patiently. You don't do a lot of sorting. You sort of say, yes, no, 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 no. Four stars, three stars, bad reviews, bad reviews. Okay, next, right? And so clearly the competition bureau is worried here about where exactly these reviewers are coming from because they can have a really positive or negative effect on a company's business. Now, there have been companies that have run afoul of these rules in the past. Back in 2015, this goes back a while now, Bell Canada had to pay an administrative fine of $1.25 million after it was revealed that certain Bell employees were encouraged to post positive reviews and ratings of the free My Bell mobile app and others without disclosing that they worked for Bell. In 2021, uh, the Competition Bureau issued fines of $5 million for the online travel agency Flight Hub Group. Um, after finding the company posted fake customer reviews in addition to charging hidden fees as well. Uh, and they've released a whole guidebook on how to spot fake reviews. You know, don't if they're overly negative or overly positive, they say, watch out, read the ones that are right in the middle, because usually they're the ones that are, you know, and, and ones from newly created user profiles, be careful with those. But, you know, sort of do your do your research. You know, you hear that word a lot. Do your research when it comes to these reviews. Uh, Catarados is Assistant Deputy Commissioner in the Cartels and Deceptive Marketing Practices branch of the Competition Bureau of Canada. And she's here with more on this. Cata, thank you. Thank you for having me today. So tell me about the timing. I mean, as always, when the Competition Bureau comes out with something like this, you always ask yourself, oh, how interesting. Why now? Well, uh, really, uh, the, the timing is such that fake reviews, fake or let's call them uh, inauthentic reviews, uh, are a global issue targeting consumers around the world. The Bureau did release a consumer alert back in March 2023 during Fraud Prevention Month for consumers. Uh, And so now the Bureau is following up with a warning to businesses on what businesses can do to be in line uh, with the Competition Act. So we also hear from our partners around the world and in Canada, uh, they receive reports about this type of conduct as well. um, so this is something that we are really targeted, that we are really encountering, if I can say it like that, on an ongoing basis. 
Um, so that is really in response to your question. That is right. why we issued this warning. Tell me a bit about because I think we all understand. If you read through the the release itself, you're talking about employees necessarily sort of posting, I guess, either positive or negative reviews, but not being transparent about who they are. Yes, that's correct. Because when consumers go online and they're researching a product or a service, and when they access the reviews, what they're looking for is an impartial opinion, you know, an opinion from someone like me. Um, If they were to know that the person that was posting those reviews is an employee, either of the company that they're looking at or a competitor, let's say in the in the context of negative reviews, that might change how they consider that review and what weight do they apply. Uh, to the review that they're reading. So what we're encouraging in the business warning is if the person who is posting the review does have a connection to the company, that they disclose that information so that regular consumers can take in, take that information into consideration when they are considering the review. You're right, because those online reviews can be incredibly powerful, right? I mean, the, dif- the difference between calling one or another plumber, say, quote unquote, you're, you know, you're looking for someone fast, you quickly read through the re- reviews, someone has a number of negative ones, you're not going to call them. I mean, it's just human nature, right? Absolutely. And the more and more people uh, shop online, and this has become, I would say, since COVID-19, even more prevalent, but even before the pandemic, people were turning online for their needs. Um, it is difficult to compare. So they are turning to those online reviews, I would say, more than any other resource. I mean, we encourage them. And, and in our Consumer Alert, we do encourage consumers to look at other resources as well to try to get to, to get a good understanding. But those reviews are right there. You see the stars, consult the consumer reviews. So it is very powerful um, for for consumers who don't really have another way of comparing the product or the service. Right. And, and you must be getting, I mean, clearly you're, you've talked about the fact that you're seeing more, you're, you're obviously getting, people are communicating to with you about these things, right? About their concerns about what these reviews are, who's posting them? Yes, we receive complaints. Uh, so people can make a complaint online via the Competition Bureau's website. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also hear from our partners. So our domestic partners uh, in law enforcement, as well as our international partners. So this is a global trend, as I said. Um, And so it's something that is concerning because uh, reviews are a form of advertising, if you will. Um, And so it is very important for regular consumers that they receive impartial information in order to make a purchasing decision. Where is that line? Because it can be tough sometimes. If you're a former employee who feels like you want to bloat, maybe you're doing it because you're disgruntled. Maybe you're doing it because you saw things within the organization that concerned you and you thought consumers should know about it. Where does the line exist? Because I, I think sometimes, I mean, clearly if you go online and post a negative review about the, about your employer because you don't like them, or you go online and post a negative review, review about your competitor, clearly that's that's wrong. But there <laughs> must be a line there too that might be a little bit hard to figure out. So I would say that if the the information could change the weight that's assigned to the review, it should be disclosed. So, you know, I can't really specify unless I know the facts of a particular case. But what I can say in general, and, you know, you had mentioned former employees, if I had been working for a company for a long, long time and I just left, that would probably pertinent information to include in the review if I'm reviewing one of their products. Right. You, you mentioned, too, that business, I mean, you talked about the individual's responsibility for their own actions posting these reviews. But what's interesting about this one, too, is that you're reminding businesses that they, too, can be on the hook if their employees are posting these reviews for them or posting these reviews, period. Yes. So under the Competition Act, it's not only the making of a representation, but also permitting a representation to be made. Um, So employers could be held liable. And that is why we are encouraging employers to train their employees uh, when they post reviews, if they post reviews, to disclose that connection to the employer. And 
not only once, but really to offer this training on a regular basis. We also encourage employers to put in place a corporate compliance program and to monitor the online reviews. And something that they may want to consider is disciplinary measures if, in fact, that compliance program isn't being adhered to. Interesting. Uh, what do the penalties look like? Because you did mention that there can be penalties here that, that in fact, in some ways, I don't want to use the word fraud, but it is to some extent misleading, right? Yes. And, and the penalties could definitely vary. I can talk about a couple of cases that we've taken in the past. Sure. Um, so in 2015, uh, Bell Canada paid a penalty of uh, $1.25 million uh, for encouraging uh, positive reviews without disclosing uh, the employer relationship. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. and I then, mean, that would be sensitive, right? I mean, if you do that, you're essentially, you're essentially, I mean, that's essentially fraudulent, right? Not fraudulent, sorry. It's essentially misleading if you're getting your yeah. own employees to post positive reviews for you. So that's why we we consider that to be a false or misleading representation under the Act. And that um, news release is available on our website. In 2021, more recently, we also uh, took action against a company uh, named Flight Hub uh, for several false or misleading representations, also including the authoring of positive consumer reviews. And as part of the settlement with uh, Flight Hub, they did remove the reviews that they had posted online that appeared to be from genuine consumers. Um, the penalty there was a total of $5.8 million. Now, in 2022, there were amendments to the Competition Act. Uh, It used to be previously capped at $10 million um, for corporations. Those penalties have now significantly increased depending on, um, it depends on a variety of factors. So I can't really, I I would not like to be specific. It's case specific, right? It's case specific. It is case specific, but um, penalties can increase now. and, And, you know, that has, there has been acknowledgement that deceptive conduct in the marketplace is anti-competitive. Right. I, I mean, it would be so tempting for companies mm-hmm. to do this because they too understand the weight of 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 the. I mean, I in my in my experience, the negative reviews carry a lot more weight within the company itself than the positive reviews, and there is a desire to want to flood that space with the positive reviews to drown out anything negative, even if the negative review is valid. Yes, obviously, the from a, I would say from a business perspective, companies want to see positive reviews associated with their products and the services that they're offering. Um, what we would like to see is the proper connections being disclosed so that consumers are operating in a fair marketplace uh, where they're able to assign a particular weight to the review. If I know that the employee, that the person that's posting the review has been working for the company for the last 10 years, maybe I might give it a little bit of less weight as to somebody who has no connection with the company and genuinely just feels as though the product is amazing and deserves a four-star rating, and this is why. Kat Arados is with us this half hour, Assistant Deputy Commissioner in the Cartels and Deceptive Marketing Practices Branch. It's an interesting spot in the Competition Bureau of Canada. Uh, Kat, how does this apply? Does this apply across the border? Is this really just those online reviews? Because, for instance, a lot of people rely on, say, LinkedIn for, for reviews of companies, for instance, or there are other sites that do reviews of companies as well. If you want to you know, apply for a job there, does it does it, does it have a wide breadth, this this Uh, this uh, warning of yours? I would say that reviews left on any online platform could be liable. Uh, So so it could be, uh, you know, looked at under the provisions of the Competition Act, to be more clear. Right. Um, So it... I will not speak to one platform in particular. I would need to have the information uh, regarding that. But what I can say in general is if the reviews are being posted online and it could affect a consumer to make a decision one way or not, a purchasing decision or going away from that product, um, that could be considered false or misleading if those reviews are not genuine.
Right. Because I, I, because I have seen in the past, you know, I, I, there are different websites where people review employers and oftentimes it's disgruntled or former employees leaving awful reviews. Right. But at the same time, then they're flooded by people leaving positive reviews who, and you, you always wonder where that's all coming from. I suppose there is a bit of buyer beware here as well. Like we're as consumers, we do take on some of the responsibility to do, you know, to, to, to do our own research or to make up our own minds. Right. Oh, absolutely. And in March, uh, like I said, in March of 2023, we issued a consumer alert uh, with tips for consumers to actually exactly as as you said, beware. So if they see a sudden spike in very, very positive or negative reviews or, you know, why is that? They should question that. Um, If they uh, hear or see the phrase, it's the best ever product, it's the worst ever product. It seems a bit extreme. So why is that? What we encourage consumers to do really is to shop around. So you're on a website, you see a product, go so, go look at other sources of information. What other reviews are you seeing on other sites? Uh, go back in time. Look at the product and the reviews over a longer period of time. Is there a certain period where there is a sudden spike or sudden drop of negative reviews, et cetera? Why is that? Um, we also like to say the meat is in the middle. And what that means is that... Uh, what consumers should be looking at as well is the two-star, three-star, and four-star reviews. Right. Um, you're more likely to find a balanced critique in the middle. So if someone is going to write a fake or uh, inauthentic review, it'll probably be in the one-star or the five-star rating. Um, those ones in the middle genuinely give you really useful information when you're making your purchasing decision. Yeah, I always, I always tend to read them and look for authenticity. You can kind of tell, right? I mean, you can kind of tell when reading through when someone sort of has, this was good, this wasn't as great, you know, recommended it was a little bit expensive, like that kind of thing. You, you can kind of, the balanced reviews tend to be the ones that are the most credible, I find. Yes, yes. And that's, that's what we think as well. And also, uh, online isn't the only place to ask around. Ask people within your circle, your friends, your family, your trusted colleagues. Have you used this product? I'm thinking of getting this. Uh, this is what we used to do before we went to the online marketplace. <laughs> Well, it's cool. something that we should consider. Yeah. So, so to try and solve this, I mean, one of the things that you, I, I would suggest there are times when, when employees do this without being told to. It's not an invert. They're just proud of who they work for. They don't like the negative reviews they may see. So they feel a need to go in and write something to defend the place they work for, but not be transparent about it. So you're essentially saying both uh, employer and employees should be more aware of this. And it's up to the employer to make sure that their staff uh, are made aware by them that this isn't proper practice. Yes, absolutely. That's the message that we're trying to get out. We're trying to get businesses to become a, be aware of this issue if they aren't already, to offer trading to their staff on this issue, and as well to put in place a compliance program. And in terms of that last point, the compliance program, they can access, uh, we have a, a compliance portal on our website where there are tips for businesses to help them do that. Yeah. And we, we really want, I mean, you know, I'm not saying that reviews cannot be posted. Reviews can be posted online, but if they they could consider be considered to be biased, that's where we have a concern because they also then can be false or misleading. Right. I, I mean, I, I think it's impossible to crack down on this 100%. It's just, it's there's too much out there, but you're really just trying to warn, you're, you're trying to warn business because you see these stories about people going through the courts and it takes forever and it's expensive. And, um, you know, the, the online reviews can have a really detrimental impact on a business. 
Absolutely. And as you spoke about the courts, the Bureau does is a law enforcement agency and we do we do take cases. Um, but we also like to encourage compliance with the act through outreach and education. Um, so that is one of the purposes of this business warning to really get the message out there so that there's less of this activity online. Well, Kata, it's a, it's a really fascinating space because it is so influential. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you very much as well. Have a great day. So my dad called me. Uh, I was speaking to him on Friday. He says, I'm going to a hockey game on the weekend. I thought, isn't that cool? I wonder well, who you're going to go see. I've seen Montreal versus Toronto. I thought, that's great. Don't the Leafs playing the Canucks this weekend? No, he was going to the Verdun Auditorium, not far from where he lives in Montreal, to see women's hockey. The Professional Women's Hockey League uh, were playing in Montreal that night. The Toronto team, they don't have nicknames yet, right? The Toronto team was in Montreal for what is, you knew was going to be a good game, right? So, I mean, it's one of the most time-honored rivalries in all of hockey by far. So it played out this weekend at the Verdun Auditorium. It was a barn burner of a game. Toronto took the lead with less than two minutes to play only to have Montreal star Marie-Philippe Poulain tie things up with 18 seconds to go and much to the delight of the 3,200 fans there to watch, including, as I mentioned, my dad. She knows she's got to speed up. She takes the far side. It's Captain Clutch time. Can she do it? She does! Marie-Philippe Poulain ties it up for the home team. Come on! Doesn't that sound great? Doesn't that sound like a lot of fun? Toronto won the game in a shootout, by the way. The first win in a shootout in the league so far. So the league was announced in August. Six inaugural franchises, 24-game regular season. Uh, the Three teams in Canada, Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa. Three teams in the U.S., Boston, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and uh, the New York City area. There are nearly 140 players filling out those rosters. You'll recognize the names from the Canadian and U.S. national squads. There are other players from other national teams, a lot of NCAA players as well. And they had a really successful launch. The first game on New Year's Day in Toronto uh, against New York was a sellout. And then they broke an attendance record the next night when Montreal played in Ottawa. They beat Ottawa in the inaugural game for the two first those two franchises, 8,300 fans. That was a record for a women's hockey game. And then that record was shattered again the next week in Minnesota when 13,300 turned out to watch Minnesota beat Montreal 3-0 in their home opener. So, so far, so good for the PWHL. They're heading into a bit of a small break at the end of this week because there'll be uh, 24 of their best players will be in a three-on-three thing at the NHL All-Star break, which is on Thursday. So this game between uh, these 24 players, three-on-three, is on February the 1st. Um, If you're curious, Minnesota's in first place, Toronto's in last place so far, but there's a lot of parity in this league uh, and it's been a good product it's been a really great product to watch so how to build on that momentum what's working what still needs fine-tuning my next guest has had a front row seat to all of this uh danielle daniela potticelli is a play-by-play announcer for the pwhl including she was at a bunch of games including that one in montreal uh, on the weekend daniela thank you Oh, thank you so much for having me. Anytime we can talk professional women's hockey, I'm here for it. Well, here we are talking, you know, I think we've talked about it in the past, you know, and certainly Canadians have been huge fans of women's hockey for a very long time now, decades at this point. But this is a big deal. I mean, I I watched the first goal. Uh, It feels like it feels like this is this is it. This is the, the league that we've been waiting for. You are absolutely right on that on that point and not just you of course the players everyone leading the charge behind the scenes you know thinking of Jaina Hefford and everything she's done and all that she's put into this and she's really taking care of all the hockey side of it and then there's the business folks but truly this is it this is the single unified league that everyone has been waiting for and has been working towards and one of the things that uh, has been so 
incredible is to meet everyone who's played in some sort of league before, right? And to a varying degree, some players would get paid, some, you know, everything was a little bit different. But they all said, you know, all of that had to happen to bring us to this moment. So here we are. The first goal was certainly one of the first. We did have a first shootout recently. So everything is just go, go, go. And it's so fun. It's so fun to be on this ground level of something so groundbreaking, knowing this is just the beginning. Tell me, I mean, you've been in in the rinks themselves, and what what uh, what I found interesting. I mean, there was, you were in Montreal the other night. Is just the the fan reaction to this is beyond what I. It's not that it's beyond what I would have expected, but it must be everything everyone had hoped it would be. At least at I, mean, I think at every rink at this point, Minnesota's been packed, Boston's been packed. Absolutely, and <laughs> you've just said it all in that this is what everyone hoped for, but you still have to have people get up, go out, even if it's snowing. And that's the best part of Canadian fans. They don't care. You know, just get us to the rink. We'll have a good time. The Montreal crowd has been electric every time I've been there. And what I mean by that is they're on their feet. Doesn't matter if it's the first period. Doesn't matter. Everything is just so energized. And I hope that continues. But it's just such a an inclusive space, too, I find. Everyone, there's just this welcoming feeling. And maybe it's just what I'm feeling from where I'm in. The broadcast booth, that's how it's been behind the scenes. But I feel like that's also filtering through to the fan experience. And just the signs have been so great to see all the young, the young girls especially, right? Just, hey, now I have a league for myself. Some of the signs are really funny. There was some, uh, what looks to be teenagers, maybe early 20s fans who said, oh, if I'd known there was a league, I would have tried harder. (laughs) You know, (laughs) things like that. Everyone's having a good time with it right now. And that's... I mean, wow, you just couldn't ask or script really, truly a better start to this league. Yeah. And part of the thing, tell me a bit about the hockey because I mean I've watched I've watched some of it. I mean it's not it's not on as access it's not as accessible always if you're I mean, I work at night, unfortunately. I mean so I, <laughs> I don't I, I don't get to see a lot of it. But uh I guess part of the the appeal here was that the league really did manage to attract the best of the best, right? I mean, not only are there players whose names you recognize from national teams, but there are also players from Europe whose names you may recognize, but also like sort of the, the creme de la creme of, of American college players, for instance. It really did manage to get everyone in. It feels that way right now. And now it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the future. Okay, okay, I'm jumping ahead. I'm jumping ahead. But truly best on best hockey. And what we're seeing is such an extension and, in my opinion, an improvement upon that tournament format. Because one of the things that was always such a difficulty of the tournament style is it's one and done in a lot of instances. There's also sometimes countries that never meet, so players that never actually got to play against some of the best in either Canada or U.S. and so forth. And so how do you truly test best on best when in the restrictions of a tournament that's not to say the tournament format isn't great and that's it's a wonderful event and and worlds will be incredible in utica this year as well in april but one of those things is that this league is allowing it to finally breathe to show what it's like night after night after night and a lot of the national team members what i've heard from coaches not from the players directly but coaches have been saying that's been an adjustment for national team players because you're going from extensive maybe centralization or intense periods where you're working with your team to now this is my life i'm doing this every day i have a routine a regimen i'm expected to perform at this high level against the best in the world 
every second night, every third night, what have you. And it's really developing everybody at the same time because the NCAA players, in my opinion, they might have a slight leg up because they're coming off. There's some coming off of seasons where they played 56 games. Right. You know, and, and they, yeah. And they know this sort of, I guess, one of the things about playing the same opponents or at least the same, you know, playing Canada, USA a lot is that you get to know your opponents so well that they can't really surprise you. But watching this league, I mean, even watching the Toronto Montreal game the other night, that was a great game. And of course, Marie-Philippe Poulet dominates because she's fantastic, but she can't win alone, right? Like she cannot win that game alone. And you just sort of feel the unpredictability of what league hockey looks like. Absolutely. But then I just love all the familiarity amongst everyone. The fact she's going up against Canada's at the time third string goaltender in Kristen Campbell. So Campbell's taken Poulin's shot a couple of times, more than a couple of times in practice. But that's a great Sarah Nurse. Exactly. You still don't know. You know, and, and same with Anne-Renée Debien, the other net. She's also faced a number of these shots. So it's one of those things, right, where there's familiarity, but everything is still so new. And you know, leading into the season, Toronto, there was lots of chatter about, oh, well, they're just going to have chemistry locked in because of their national team connections. Well, not necessarily. I'm seeing so much chemistry out of a team like New York because every single player on that roster is new to the state and everything is new. And it's like that fresh start can be such a bonding experience. Like it's all about how you frame it and how you see it. And that's not to say Toronto doesn't have great connections on the team already, but nothing is a lock in this league, and we're seeing that night after night. Yeah, and Minnesota, I mean, when one looked at the original, we'll talk about the team names later, but when we looked at the original list of teams, Minnesota was sort of the, sort of the outlier, like, wow, that's far from everybody else, and why Minnesota? And then you look at someone like Grace Zumwinkle and think, right, hometown hero, the team is great so far. I mean, he, they're kind of one of the, and the rink is packed. So it's yes. interesting stories about, about anyone who would have thought Minnesota's an odd choice. I stand corrected. If you are familiar with NCAA, Minnesota seems like a very obvious choice given mm-hmm. the, the, the feeder and, and how much talent comes through uh, the university and college system in, in Minnesota. But that being said, it can go either way, right? You have a team with a lot of hometown connections. Is that going to be a pro or a con? And in this case, Minnesota is just humming along. And the fact that they're the only team to have at this time two home wins, uh, it's just been so exciting for them. Daniela Ponticelli is a play-by-play announcer for the PWHL, the Professional Women's Hockey League. She called Ella Shelton's first goal uh, for New York. Uh, that was, goes back now to January the 1st, and she was in Montreal over the weekend for a very exciting game that ended in a shootout win for Toronto over Montreal. Um, and, and the fans were going, and, you know, there's a last two goals in the last minute and a half of the game. And it was, a, yeah, it was, it was a really exciting game. So any surprises so far? Because we've been talking a bit about this. Some of the names of people we thought would kind of light it up I've been having more trouble with the format and maybe the ice size and so on. Some of the people we thought might dominate haven't. Some have, obviously, but it just hasn't been, maybe hasn't been exactly what we thought it would be having watched so much um, sort of international women's hockey for so long. Surprises? That might be an interesting word because for me, I came in so open to just anything happening, right? You just never know. So now we've got this whole mix of players, some who have extensive experience playing against each other, some with many, many years uh, beside one another. And I, I didn't know what to expect. The physical play did not surprise me. It is because, physical. Wow. I yes, mean, it surprised a lot down, of people. Right? It did yeah. not surprise me purely because even on the U Sports level here in Canada, 
you see that. I think of UBC, they come to mind because I was spent a lot of time in Canada West the last uh, three seasons. And UBC was such a tough physical team. It's what helped them uh, win the Canada West title last year. And so they come to mind as a team that they would be so physical and they would always play within the, the rules, right? Within what was allowed. And so I started to see that trickling in and I went, I wonder, I'm pretty sure the PWHL is going to bring some of that in. So that was good. I didn't know, of course, until we're getting set up for for game one about the fact that, yep, the PWHL, they're, they're structuring themselves as a physical and skill league, skilled league, meaning they're going to allow this contact. Everyone is is brushed up on it. They want consistent officiating across the league, and that's such a big part of it, too. It's not about officials putting whistles away or doing something that's out of the realm of what needs to happen in in the style of play so there's my little rant on that part i guess they're figuring that out too right i guess they're Mm -hmm. figuring that out too because we saw that hit um that hit uh on tabins hit on connors on the weekend that you called uh that was just a monster hit and and there was going to be a penalty for it they ended up scoring um and it it was and it was it was nullified but i I guess they're sort of figuring out where that line is when it comes to the to the hitting in the in the game Absolutely. When it comes to the open ice contact, especially, but uh, just just that physical play against the boards is is not new, and uh, and sort of the net front scrums. That's uh, you know kind of part of it too. Is it's the energy is building. You're close to the goaltender. You don't do that, right? So that that's a big part of it. I would say, in terms of a, of a surprise, I just think overall the amount of outwardly sportsmanship so everyone is just so ecstatic but i did not realize you know handshake lines were going to stay a thing right that's just something that i was except aware once of. right except once except <laughs> once and then they apologize so to me i'm just this is so i actually it's not about my opinion on this i'm just a play-by-play announcer but to see those moments after just a heated game and so many games have gone to overtime uh by the way we've had eight of the first 15 games finished three, two. So tight games as well. It's just one of those things where it's nice to see that. And to me, that's something that could stay uniquely part of the women's game. And that's another part of it too, is what is unique to this league and perhaps, you know, looking at why we don't need to change things to be like other leagues. It can just stay what it is because it's unique and it's its own. The parody is nice. The parody is because sometimes you know early early on, oftentimes in those in, in new leagues, you get sort of you get an imbalance, right? You get teams that are just better run than other teams. It always happens. And it feels like there's parody, at least in the PWHL this year. So no matter who you cheer for, the chances are your team can go out and win that night against whomever they're playing. And that that makes it more interesting for the fans too, for all fans of the league. I agree as well on that one. It's just one of those things where we're still early. We're not even one month in, but we're seeing you know, teams have just stellar nights and then maybe get played really tight and then lose in overtime. Uh, one other surprise, though, the home disadvantage in the league That's is right. just intriguing, right? Because to me, I think a game is played. It's played. It doesn't shouldn't matter where you do it. But of course, in front of a big home crowd, that's, you know, lighting up every time you score. That's super exciting. And yep, Minnesota, Montreal, the first teams to do it and lots who have yet to to win at home. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. interesting. What's it been like? What's what are the rinks like? Is this obviously you know for someone of my vintage, it's fantastic to see hockey at the Verdun Auditorium again. It's fantastic to see hockey at what used to be Maple Leaf Gardens. I mean, that's really exciting. What's it like to be in those rinks? I enjoy it. I enjoy all the different types of venues because everything has 
benefits. And then, you know, some like, oh, I kind of wish I wish this or I wish that from where I'm sitting. And that's a different vibe from what the players are experiencing in the ice. But everything has been so professional. The crews have been fantastic in every barn. And there's always something to be said about a place with so much history like Verdun, right? You walk in there and you can feel it and it doesn't matter that, okay, maybe it's not, you know, what we see in terms of, quote, modern arenas, but it's got everything you need and it brings everyone together right on top of the game. It's so wonderful to call because you are so close. So that will always be something that I enjoy about barns like that. You're just set up and you're also kind of part of the action because you're right above the crowd almost right on the ice. So to me, there's no bad barn in this league. I'll be very, uh, very frank about that. I've loved every single one. Place Bell was a treat though, because that's, you know, a little bit of a different setup there, but everyone has been, has been great. Anatomy, you know, the old Maple Leaf Gardens, how spectacular is that? Yeah, that's awesome. But that's still being used. What are they going to come up with? The one thing, what are they going to come up with names for these teams? I I I saw the list of names they came up with. I know this is not in your purview, but. I was going to say, I can't comment on this. I know, it would be nice though. It'd be nice for you to be able to call them something other than the city city name. You know, it's funny because I think if I'm, if I'm being truly honest coming into it, I went, oh goodness, I've never been in this situation as an announcer where there's only one, one way to call it surprisingly it has not been an issue you know it was one of those things where in my mind i went oh i wonder and then as it's happening you just kind of go with it and 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 it goes but the nice thing is the names will be coming i don't know when i don't know how (laughs) the names will be coming (laughs) and i will say this i think i gotta get my hands on some of those original jerseys though because i feel like it's not going to take long before they're collector items and it's going to be hard to get I think this could be really, really smart move, right? You could bring these out for like special nights to kind of throw it back to the the early days of the PWHL. You know, there's lots of plans, but th- th- those are just my own my own thoughts on the matter. But I I'm looking forward to when it happens. But right now, I'm so glad that the league did what it did, which is focusing on you know building the the, the type of league that it is over some of these nuances that they're just. You know, that's just the right. way it is right so, now. So I, I guess right now it's just because I was seeing, actually, they've, they've done polling on the PWHL, believe it or not. And, and the people who've seen it, a lot of, obviously, like everything nowadays, you know, media is so diverse and, and it's so kind of fragmented that people, Canadian, not not a ton of Canadians, I think maybe 55% have heard of the league. But everyone who's who's seen it or heard of it likes it, likes the idea, likes, and so I guess the idea now is just getting the word out, right? The product seems to be pretty great uh, and getting better. It's just getting the word out so that people tune in and, and have a look. Give it a shot. Absolutely. And to think we're not even a month in and we've had so many spectacular games. The NHL showcase is coming up. There will be the three-on-three game for the Professional Women's Hockey League featuring just absolutely stacked stacked rosters and if you're wondering oh you know what's one thing that jumps out how about this canada's captain usa's captain Poulin knight on the same team are wow. you kidding me that's never happened before and we're playing the best daniela good luck thank you so much thank you so much for the for the time 